Direct from Montreal, Canada, this is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Welcome to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Uh, joining me on the phone from the band Loverboy, it is singer Mike Reno. The band is coming to uh, Montreal on uh, June 20th, uh, 2020, of course, for a very, very important gig called Strangers in the Night. And uh, Strangers in the Night is a charity event with uh, money being raised for the uh, Lymphoma Canada and Friends for Mental Health. So we uh, we discuss that charity event. And of course, uh, a charity event is essentially what got Loverboy back together as a band in 1991. They, they were playing a, a cancer benefit. And from that benefit, they sort of said, you know what? This is fun. We should go out and, and play some more. And here we are... Uh, all these years later, you know, almost, what, 30 years later, and the band is still going strong, still still sounding great. So uh, charity events, very important in the uh, history of Loverboy, but also very important for these uh, charities. Uh, in this case, Lymphoma Canada and Friends for Mental Health. Uh, for more information on the, uh, on the gig, please head over to strangersinthenight.ca. That's strangersinthenight.ca. Dot .ca a great great gala benefit anyway i will be there that night uh, so will uh, jeremy white of the beat 925 in montreal because well we do a lot of shows together so you come on out come and see a great evening of loverboy there's there's a great dining it is a uh, what do you call it a, a gourmet gala so there there's all kinds of great food and of course you're raising money for a great cause but uh, on that let me get over to mike reno here he is, uh, from the band Loverboy, the one, the only, Mike Reno. We are speaking with Loverboy's frontman, Mike Reno. Uh, he will be in uh, Montreal for the Strangers in the Night Benefit Gala on June 20th. It benefits uh, Lymphoma Canada and Friends for Mental Health. And I can hear, Mike, you're in the back. You're, you're, you're just getting excited to talk about this, I can tell. I'm super excited to talk about this. <laughs> yes. Uh, so bon, Strangers bon... in the Night. Isn't that, wasn't that a big song, Strangers in the Night? Yes. So maybe you'll have to work up a, a cover version uh, for that. But, uh, but let's talk about this yeah. benefit. They've had all kinds of great people out there. They've had uh, Styx and Culture Club and Sheila E. and so on and so forth. And... It is for, like I said, Lymphoma Canada and Friends for Mental Health. Talk to me about the importance of not just playing regular lover boy gigs here and there, but also once in a while coming out and saying, hey, you know what, we're going to support a good cause. Um, we, yeah, we do. Uh, lover boy has a thing we do every year, too, called uh, uh, Lover Boys Rockin' for Research, which benefits uh, JDRF, which is another good cause for juvenile diabetes. You know, we like to do our part, pitch in, you know, when we can. And uh, this is just one of those times where we're happy to be there, you know, really. Yeah, it's going to be great. Really looking forward to it. Yeah, and you haven't, uh, you haven't been in Quebec in the last couple of years. I think the last time I saw you was in Santia Sense. It'll be nice to have you back. Um, let me look back in the history sort of of the band. Since we're talking charity events, back in October of 91, you did a charity event with Colin James and Brian Adams for... Uh, the Brian McLeod, uh, for, for, for Brian McLeod, who was in the Headpins and, of course, Chilliwack, uh, he was affected by a brain cancer and was fighting that. Talk to me about that event and going back and, and getting involved. And after the band had broken up, and I guess somewhat acrimoniously, you said, you know what, this cause is bigger than 
our fights. We need to be there to support this. And, and talk to me a little bit about that day and that event. Well, at the time, um, just to be clear, we never really broke up. We were just waiting for uh, people to get some of their uh, ducks in a row, like record companies, uh, radio stations at that time. I don't know if you remember this, but right around that time, radio stations, um, basically all they wanted to play was grunge. They thought that was like the next coming of the uh, the Beatles kind of thing. So they just dropped everybody, including like ZZ Top and Sticks and Journey. And, and, and then the radio, uh, record companies decided they didn't want any more records, so we all just went... Well, what's going on here? Let's just take a little break and find until everybody comes to their senses. So at that time, we had a lot of time on our hands. And a friend of ours who I'd worked with for many years and wrote songs together, some ended up on Loverboy albums, co-writes. Uh, Brian McLeod got really sick, and he was really trying to get better. And as you know, uh, sadly, with some uh, different uh, ailments, they don't provide any care for you if it doesn't qualify for, uh, you know, payment. Like some things fly under the radar and they don't have any money for them. So we had to raise some money for him to get some special uh, uh, help, you know, with his cancer. And um, in doing so, we realized how much fun it was, you know, just to play whether or not record companies had it together or not, or whether or not radio stations were ever going to play us again. We enjoyed playing. We, we, we enjoyed doing it for Brian. We also enjoyed playing for ourselves, and it just came so naturally. We just banged, we banged off a set that we'd played for years on the road, and it just felt so good that we looked at our managers, and as we walked by back to the dressing room, our manager was standing there, and he went, should I start booking some shows or what? And we just kind of laughed and said, yeah, go for it. You know, so it was kind of like one of those sad times for us because we were doing a favor for a friend who was, you know, really sick. But it also kind of, it was all about music. And Brian McLeod was all about music. He was just, he had a recording studio in his boat. We, him and I had cut a lot of songs down there. Some of the other guys in the band worked with him. We'd been in the studio on different projects together, uh, working as songwriters and producers. You know, it was a really sad time for us, but it all turned out great for us. And sadly, he, he didn't make it past uh, the experimental stages of this medicine. So, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's really, really a sad time, bittersweet. Yeah, it really is. Um, I, I do want to, and, I, and I, I'm going to move on respectfully, I, I do want to ask about what you just brought up about record companies, because you look at bands that are on the road in 2020, the Loverboys, the Def Leppards, the Poisons, the Motley Crue, the Kisses, the death nail has been dr driven into their coffin in 87, in 89, 92, 95. What is it about your music and that music, that arena rock that survives through all these trends and survives through all the, oh, they're old and we don't, because there's only sort of these bands that do this still. Well, I don't know about you, but I find the 80s music quite refreshing. It just sounds good. It's got a big, wide scope of interesting topics. You can understand what's happening. You can hear the, the melodies. You can hear the... The, the music it's something that i think is going to stand the test of time and looks like still is because we've never been busier to be honest with you and you know it's like <laughs> i'm sure it's just all about the music mitch it's just it's all about the music and at the time i think the record companies um were basically just jumping on a bandwagon kind of thing it's like you know when the winnipeg blue bombers are winning everybody's in and when they're losing everybody's out kind of thing <laughs> One of those kind of things, or or you could say the same thing for uh, hockey teams, but um, it's kind of sad to see people do that. You know, they left a 
left the whole scene because they just thought one thing was going to be the only thing. And uh, it says a lot about the uh, industry at the time. And, you know, I've never been a big fan of record companies anyway, so um, they tend to uh, loan you a bit of money and then strip your strip the money away for the rest of your life. You mean you're not they a fan of worse. recoupment? Uh, well, recoupment is one thing, but taking 50% <laughs> of everything for for eternity is another thing, right? Yeah. Paying back a loan is paying back a loan. That doesn't mean that they still own the house. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and then record companies, they, uh, they loan you the money to buy the house, and then you pay it all off, and they still own the house, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. And I think uh, anybody who's from the music business will probably understand that statement. <laughs> oh, oh, so well. Um, one of the organizers of Strangers in the Night, uh, the mayor of, of Pierre Font, Jim, is a huge, huge Kiss fan. To die for a Kiss fan, of course, you uh, got your start with Kiss in 1979. You got to open a show on their Dynasty tour. Talk to me a little bit about that experience. I know in previous interviews we've talked about it, but... For this one, talk to me about that experience, getting that call, and then realizing, oh heck, this this is not the high school cafeteria we're playing. This is uh, it was the Coliseum, I guess it was. Uh, this was the Vancouver Coliseum. You were right. It was uh, it was something that just kind of happened, and it was kind of an interesting story because at the time, Kiss were, were coming to town to play a, an evening show, and. A one of the bands that was supporting them that, that was supposed to open the show couldn't get across the border for whatever reason. We didn't know the reason, but we assumed it was probably because it was the New York Dolls. <laughs> and I guess they were all friends from New York because uh, Kiss and, and all the guys probably formed a uh, Kiss in, in New York. And, and, and of course, uh, the New York Dolls at the time were kind of a, a punk band that were doing quite well. So they brought them on tour with them, but they wouldn't let them into Vancouver. So, um, we got a call from our manager saying, what are you guys doing? I said, well, we're just practicing like we're always doing. Writing out some new songs, writing. Why, why do I have, what do you have in mind, Bruce? And he goes, this is Bruce Allen I'm talking about. He says, I want you guys to get your stuff together. You're playing tonight at the, at the, at the Coliseum. And we went, we're what? <laughs> you know, completely. So we didn't even have a bass player at the time. Speaking of, uh, of Canadian talent, we had uh, Jim Clench, the bass player for April Wine. He was in town hanging out and, and he was, he came into our rehearsal hall a couple of times just to play around and have some fun. And so we asked him if he could quickly learn a few songs to play that night. And it, it was like, oh my God, he uh, he was kind of crash learning uh, maybe eight songs that nobody would ever heard before. And he'd never heard them before because they were all our Loverboy originals. So we always ever played in Loverboy were originals. So we were doing a thing where we'd go over to him between songs and 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 go into his ear. It's just the one that goes boom, 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 boom on bass. You start it. Go ahead. <laughs> He's like he looked like a deer caught in the headlights. And uh, but it was you know one of those things. And the place was full of full of people. You know, ready to rock. And the cool thing is, I've been to some concerts at the Coliseum before. And if the warm-up band didn't do very well, they got booed off the stage because Vancouver's a brutal audience, right? Especially back then. So I felt pretty good that, you know, we got a pretty good response, but we didn't get booed. And I thought, wow, that was a victory. But the whole thing kind of went by. I was in shock myself for the whole 45-minute set. 
And uh, as I walked off the stage, I couldn't even remember what I'd done. That's a great story, and, and yeah, um, let me get over real here quick to it to an album that marked me was uh, loving every minute of it back in '85. One of the things that I find remarkable about that is that it's so uniquely Canadian in the sense that you were at Little Mountain Studios. You've got Brian Adams and Jim Valance writing the song "Dangerous." Uh, you've got Robert uh, Mutt Lang on on the title track. You, when you think of the Canadian scene, all those guys, that studio, that city, all these people working together, sort of helping each other out in a sense. Talk to me a little bit about that that moment, that album, and, and what made Little Mountain Sound Studios sort of the international place that it became and, and, and its massive drum sound? Well, you know what? It was a mecca for rock and roll in, uh, in Canada at the time. It just so happened that there was two recording studios side by side and a few other studios that were used for editing and doing commercials and stuff. But the two studios side by side uh, were in between a large bay where they used to load in. It would have been, if it was a, a business of some sort, they would have loaded in all their product in this bay. And it was between the two recording studio rooms. So if you ran some microphones and speakers... Uh, in into that bay, you could record a whole thing. And what what they found out, and this was Bob, Bob Rock, who's you know become a famous producer since then. He was started off as uh, uh, not only a guitarist in a great Canadian band, but he was uh, to to help you know pay the rent. He was a sound engineer, and it turned into be a great sound engineer. And he came up with some ideas, him and Bruce Fairburn, to to send some microphones to to. I guess it would be to play the drum sounds into that room and then set microphones up to record the sound back again. So it was, it was quite an interesting technique and they came up with it and they made it sound great. And after a few records came out of that, that area, you know, that the whole studio, Little Mountain, people were dying to have that sound. It just became the sound of the early 80s. And we were lucky enough to be living here and we had the connection and Bruce Allen was handling... Uh, uh, Bob Rock and Bruce Allen was was handling uh, Brian. He was handling Brian Adams. He was handling um, everybody. And so the whole thing came in. And when we needed songs, people would just send us songs. We'd, we'd try out some songs. We'd play some songs. We wrote mostly wrote our own songs. But every once in a while, we'd, we'd hear a song and go, can we try that one out? And we were at the at the stage right when we were at, we were in need of one more song. And we really wanted something that would probably be a single. And uh, Brian was working with Mutt Lang at the time and had worked with them a few times. So Bruce Allen had known. And he'd mentioned to uh, Mutt Lang that Loverboy needs a song. He says, I got a really good one right here. I'm just, I just finished. I'll send it to you, which is really cool. But the thing is, this is before you could send it like email. You could send music and email this before you could, uh, you know, there was no cell phones. I mean, believe it or not, there was none of that kind of stuff going. Um, the internet hadn't been created yet. So, Basically, he had the song recorded, and he played it in his studio and held up the, the phone. We, on the other hand, had the phone, and we, we put it on speakerphone and recorded it onto a cassette. And then we sat around and tried to figure out how to play the song. 
and you know, so it really wasn't the best circumstances, but we managed to uh, to get into the whole groove and get into the lyric and get into everything, and we recorded it as a band, and it became you know the name of the album. It became a big a big song for us, and still is a big song for us. So, and that was that was kind of the workshop. Um, Bon Jovi were in there, Aerosmith came in there, Motley Crue came in there. I mean, it was just one band after another, um, and it was just this place. I mean, I used to stop in there just for coffee, just to say hi to some of the bands I've known over the years. You know, it was kind of, if I wasn't working and I was home, it was the place to stop in on the, go downtown and head Little Mountain to see who's there. It was always fun. You could always sit in and listen to somebody. And even back in the day when ACDC and everybody were recording, we would do all these chant things like thunder, oh, thunder, you know, for the records. Just because there was like 10 of us standing and having a coffee, and they went, You guys come on in here. We want you to sing a song. So, so, we'd put so you're on the Thunder Chorus? Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, there you go. Because I, I know on Motley Crue, the guys from uh, Jack Blades, uh, from Night Ranger, Steven Tyler, and Brian Adams, there's a, a famous picture of them doing. You know the the backing vocals for the Doctor Feelgood album. So you're on the you're on the ACDC album. Uh, well, sure, we were, everyone was. I mean, everyone That's who was right. in town at the time was on the album. Mike uh, Fraser was, <clears throat> you know, working with them. Um, you know, it was kind of like Fraser was started off as a uh, second engineer. You know, he used to sleep underneath the mixing console at night so he could be the first one at the studio in the morning. And uh, at the time, probably didn't have a nicer place to sleep, a nicer, warmer place to sleep. <laughs> so it, it just became a place that was like, you know, the place. And that's still, I wished it was still the place because it was a fabulous sound in the studio. And it was such a great uh, little part of town. I spent most of my uh, most of my time in that whole area there. I, every time I drive down that area, I pull over and I go, wow, I remember this. Because you remember the park across the street and, and there was a, a CSIS, the, you know, the uh, basically the CIA of Canada was across the street and there was all kinds of crazy stuff happening in that building. And so it was the 201 West 7th, man. That was, I remember that, I can remember the address just like that. Boy, to, to think of, of Canada back in the day, you had Le Studio in Morin Heights in, in Quebec, and you had that. And between ACDC and the police and all these bands, Canada had it covered back in the day. Boy, did where did we go wrong? We, sh- we, we should still be the leader in this place. Um, let, me, let me just quickly ask you about new music. The band, of course, when you go and play the shows, it is the hits. And I have seen you live, and it is not only the hits. It is just fantastic. There's a great energy Everybody gets up from the first chord. I mean, the, the fans, and they sing every word to every song for 75 minutes. I mean, it's, it's, it's a religious experience. Um, but, but for you as a creative person, is it important to sit down and write some new songs and get something out in 2020, 2021, or something before the band you know, rides into the sunset? You know, we, we do write songs all the time, and what we've been doing lately is p- putting some songs out on the Internet, just basically throwing them out there and making it like, uh, you know, to all our friends and fans that, that go to the uh, our website, we uh, we just basically say, enjoy yourself, have fun with them, you know, no charge, take it, love it, whatever. <clears throat> and what happened is the record, record industry kind of went crazy and it just disappeared as uh, nobody's buying anything anymore. You cost a lot of money to go in the studio and record. People forget that aspect of it, you know. We would go in and record an album, we'd spend 200 grand. So in order to get some money back, you had to sell the records. I mean, it's just like somebody makes some shoes. 
you got to charge for the shoes. It's the same thing. It, uh, you know, it's the same thing all the way down the pipe. But um, in this day and age, I've never been able to go out and get free shoes just because it's, uh, you know, 2020. So what people get the music for nothing now. They, they just expect not to pay for it. And it's kind of a sad state of affairs, but that's the way it is. So consequently, we're not super excited to sit down and go in the recording studio and run up a big bill, uh, knowing that nobody's ever going to buy these things. I mean, I know for sure that groups do record, but I know for sure also that none of them ever sell anything or make any money. It's just a sad state of affairs. And, you know, I'm not even jaded about it. It's just I've accepted the reality. So um, I'll give you an example. I've just recently written a song for Top Gun 2 hoping that it would be put on the uh, the new album or in the new movie. And I wrote it with the uh, guy who wrote uh, uh, Eye of the Tiger for Survivor and a lot of the 38s. Jim Petterick. Uh, yeah, Jim Petterick. Yes. So him and I went in the studio. We were writing for a day in his place in Chicago, and then we went and organized a whole band to go in the studio and cut it the next day. And then that night I sang it. And... And then we mixed it, and we mixed it again, and then we made it sound fantastic. And I had my managers and his manager both. We sent them into the uh, the person involved with the music for the new Top Gun movie because we were writing it for that movie. So we had all the lyrics were just perfect for a, for a movie about jets and, and being in the military and all that. And, you know, you know, we never even heard a word back from them. And that's just the way the music business is going right now. At least we in the old days we would have got a, somebody said something to us, you know, like thanks, but we're not going to be able to use it or something. Now I'd be completely surprised if it turns out in the movie, and I'll be very happy about it. But nobody's contacted us either way. So we're writing, we're always writing, and we're recording, we're working, and we're touring. I mean, I've never been this busy. We're, we're you know, I got a few weeks off right now, which is awesome, uh, and then it's just going to be go go go. So it's not like we're not recording. We just uh, record when we feel like we can and when we got something to say. Uh, and just uh, for folks that don't know, Jim put out an album last year called Winds of Change with a song with Mike called Without a Bullet Being Fired, which to me was one of the best rock songs I've heard in the last decade. It was just a great, great track. Is that the same track that you went to Top Gun 2 with, or did you write another? Yes, it is. And oh. I knew he was going to put it on his record. But we also, but then we initially wrote it for that, and that's kind of why why we were hoping for, oh. you know, because it would have been big on, you know, Top Gun, you know, the new Top Gun movie is probably going to be fabulous, and everybody's going to go see it. So that would have been a great little, you know, thing for us. It's and incredible. thank you for uh, tell, for telling me that you enjoyed that song. Oh, dude, I, I love I that. love it. I, I love Jim. I talk to Jim every so often, and that's just a great great track. Um, I, you did mention quickly when we were talking about Little Mountain, uh, Bon Jovi coming in, and so on and so forth. One of the last uh, sort of chart singles for you was Notorious, which, of course, was written by John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora. Was that one of those where they sent you the track and you said, OK, let's make it Loverboy? Or did you sit in a room with John and Richie and you sort of sussed this out and go, well, is this going to go on a Bon Jovi album? Is this going to go on a Loverboy album? Do we send this over to the Kiss guys for there? Talk to me a little bit about Notorious and what's sort of the story there. Well, Notorious was was with, with Paul. With Paul Dean was in the room. He he went down to uh, New uh, New Jersey to uh, their studio, and he worked with them and came up with a lot of the song. And then when he brought the song back, I I came in and I, I rewrote a bunch of stuff and added a few parts. So it was kind of a co-write between the four of us. And it was just one of those things that happened. Uh, Paul went down hoping he could come up with something, and they started on something, and then it, then it sounded really good. So. With, 
he brought it back and we we we, we started recording i i finished helping uh, write it and then we recorded it and it was uh, just a high a high energy rock we, we did a video for it it was a really fun song we play it every night but people get a kick out of it it's a great song i, I, I mean you know tell me one lover boy song that's not great uh now we've re- <laughs> oh really I'm telling you, when you see the band live, it's great. And, of course, you'll see them at Strangers in the Night in June, on June 20th. Um, I will I will leave it at that. See, and no red leather pants questions. I, sa- I said to somebody, I'm going to interview Loverboy, and they said, ask him about the red leather pants. And I'm going, no. They've probably been asked that 87,000 times. He'll punch me if I ask him that silly question. But uh, Thank you for not getting into the red leather pants, which were, by the way, <laughs> Um, given to, we we were allowed to go into this leather shop and grab anything we wanted because our manager's uh, uh, publicist's husband, he had the leather shop, the nicest one in town called Nettle Leather. We would go. He, she said, "Go." My husband said, "You guys go down, and pick out whatever you want, and we'll just put it on the list, and you guys can pay it back when you start making some money." You know, this is early days, right? And we just went, "What? A leather shop? Are you kidding?" You know, we could have barely afford jeans, so. We went down there and grabbed a bunch of stuff, and I tried on these pair of red leather pants, and they happened to fit so good because the leather was really thin. And I just went, oh, these are going to be good. And they ended up in the video, and that was the end of it. It just went from crazy from there. And then it ended up on an album cover. And now everybody, you know, even today when we play concerts and we have a meet and greet, everybody goes, where's the red leather pants, man? They expect me to wear them. You know, and I say, where's your grad outfit that you wore in grade 12? You know what I mean? I'm trying to make an example. Like, do we still, do we have to wear the same thing that we wore for 40 years? Now it's going 40 years now. But I still get that question. I'm glad you didn't ask it, though. Yeah, no, I, I had to be a little a little smarter than that. But uh, I, I will finish on this. You did say you, you sang on that ACDC album. Are there other known albums that, that you sang on that we're not aware of? Were you on a Brian Adams album? Were you on the Motley Crue albums? Who else recorded there? Aerosmith has recorded there. Um, bon Jovi. You know, I think I was probably on most of those records. I can't remember. Because wow. you know what it was? We would just... Hang We'd out. be having coffee or in the pinball machine room, playing pinball or having coffee or hanging out and talking to guys. And they'd say, come in here for a minute. We'd all just come in and go, shot through the heart, you know, that kind of thing. And I can't even remember the ones that were on, but um, it was just a pleasure to do it. We didn't expect to be uh, paid for it or by any means. And then in in return, I think the same kind of people sang on Love and Every Minute of it, you know, like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, all those big harmonies and stuff. So it was kind of a reciprocal kind of a deal. If you needed anybody, you just go in the hallway and say, come on in here for 20 minutes. And you go around a big microphone, there's 10, 20 people around a microphone, and you all yell into the one microphone. That gives it that big sound, right? And it was a lot of fun. I really miss, uh, I miss it. But you know what? Recently, we were called in, I think it was last year, but only because last year was not that long ago. Uh, they was They had... They had uh, the opening of Little Mountain. They put it all back like it used to be, uh, as best they could with the parquet floor, the high ceilings, and everything. And I almost cried. It looked so beautiful. So they're back in business. Wow, that's that. That's great. And and it's nice to know that back then, even within the the, the competition for the charts and the tours and. There was still a camaraderie between bands and just said, hey, you know what? The heck with it. Let's go sing on this Loverboy album. Let's go sing on this ACDC album. Uh, and on that, though, I will remind folks, uh, strangersinthenight.ca. 
has all the information about the Benefit Gala. It does take place just outside of Montreal on June 20th. And, of course, there will be a special live performance by the seul et unique, the one and only Loverboy. Uh, Mike, toujours un plaisir. Always a pleasure. Thank you, by the way. Merci beaucoup, monsieur. Thank you very much, Mitch. À la prochaine. And we'll see you in June. <laughs> okay. This has been Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. For more exclusive content and interviews, subscribe on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, on YouTube, and many more. Follow Mitch on all the socials, especially Twitter, at Mitch LaFon, and on Instagram, at Mitch underscore LaFon. Get your Mitch merch now at loudtracks.com slash Mitch.